last class we were discussing that how the srimad bhagavatam came into existence and we find that being prescribed by narada vyasa went into deep contemplation to revoke the divine play which krishna played when he was in his mortal frame in the in this earth he was just going through all the divine plays and vyasa was the one who witnessed the entire divine play of sri krishna and he went into deep contemplation being asked by narada to compose a scripture which speaks mainly of the divine sport of krishna and this entire scripture this entire purana the mahapurana came out from the memory of sri vyasa and we find that this uh, bhagavat samhita is something which even today has a lot of uh, significance in the spiritual uh, life of the ordinary human being those who cannot go for this elaborate rituals or yagya even in our day to day life this the philosophy of the bhagavatam is something which we can easily adopt so what's the nature of this scripture srimad bhagavatam that we started discussing in the last class which has been actually described in the seventh sloka of the seventh chapter of the first part of srimad bhagavatam it's one of the very famous slokas of srimad bhagavatam what it is saying what's the nature of this bhagavat samhita yasyam vai shruyamanaya krishne paramapurusha bhakti utpaddate pungsa shoka moha bhayapaha so if one somehow listens to bhagavata say it's not that you have resolved that most probably just by passing by uh, some uh, place where the bhagavat katha is going on and by chance you have heard that's the ahaituki kripa of the lord you can say that the grace unconditional grace that somehow the chance made you to listen to the this the divine sports as has been spoken of in the bhagavatam so yasyam vai shruyamanayam 
somehow you have came to listen the Bhagavatam. Then what happens? You will find that suddenly you find that there's another dimension of existence, which I was not aware of. And that immediately gives you something to thrive on, something to hold on to. And that's what is being mentioned, that Krishna Parama Purusha Bhakti Utpaddhati Pumsa. Just by hearing, you become aware of that another dimension of existence and start developing devotion. For the Supreme brings Sri Krishna. So the Lord incarnates in various forms as this Bhagavatam is mainly describing the life of Sri Krishna. So Sri Krishna is taken as the Supreme Being. So he who came to this earth as incarnated to this, in this earth as Sri Krishna, you develop devotion for him. And what happens once you develop the devotion, what's the result? Is it a mere emotion which has as such no ro- result? They say in Bengali, Aranye Rodan. Just in the deep in the forest, you are just crying. Who will help you there? If in the deep forest, no one hears you, that you are crying because you are in a pitiable situation. No one can help you. You are helpless. Your crying is of no use. So here they are saying that this devotion is not something like that, that it is just a uh, flow of emotion. It what How it helps? This emotion which develops, this devotion which develops, this will result in shoka, moha, bhayapaha in the removal of shoka, the misery, moha, all sorts of delusion, and bhaya, the fear. As we always resort to the present language to make these slokas very meaningful, we will resort to the modern language of what the shoka, moha, bhaya means. It's a very wonderful term. You can easily relate shoka. What we consider as real misery in our life. That we are in a situation which, from which we cannot come out. That is the real shoka. That in the language of modern psychology, we can say it is inescapable trauma. The shoka. That I find in a situation in my life. We all are bound to face the situation. As Swami Vivekananda used to say, that life is as if an adventure. We are climbing the mountain, following a path, wonderful scenery. And suddenly you come at the edge of a precipice and you find nowhere to go. Just one step further, you fall. So we all have experienced that in our life. As a young man, we are all optimist with our qualifications, with our strength, with all our skills. We think now we are in the top of the world. And in a very short time, we find from various sides, from family, from workplace, from everywhere, the blow is coming. We are cornered. And we find there is no way out. It is inescapable trauma. Is something which we face in our life either today or tomorrow. It is waiting for us. One of our our monk of this Ramakrishna order, Swami Ashokananda, he was in San Francisco for a long time. He was a very evolved Swami. And he was very well known in the West for his wonderful, this exposition of Vedanta. 
So one day he was sitting in his living room in his monastery and there was a huge glass pen. He was having tea and was just chit-chatting with some other devotees. And suddenly they saw a bird flying, suddenly came and crashed on that glass pane, glass window pane, and it fell, collapsed. It was severely injured. Ashokanandaji commented a very nice thing, that that's what happens with all of us in our life. We are flying with colorful, that's all the dreams. We think that life now is unobstructed for me. This is unending expanse in which I can progress. Only sky is the limit. And from where, nowhere, this invisible glass pen comes, we just strike and fall. We collapse. That is the inescapable trauma. We find from where it comes, we don't know. In what always the situation suddenly changes, we don't know. We always expected that the good times will be there forever. It never happens. So this inescapable trauma is something which is called shoka. From that, what happens? Moha, delusion. For that, when we are in this inescapable trauma, now that optimism changes into pessimism. We start thinking there is no way out. And that's in the modern psychological language. It's called learned helplessness. We learn that we are helpless. The situation has taught us that we are so helpless. And from that, the bhaya comes, the defeatist attitude from the fear. I try no more. I become a bundle of dejection. Life has as if no meaning for me. So here one interesting thing is saying, this being told, that here comes the importance of the spiritual life, of the scriptures. Suddenly when you find that the life as if has no solution, and suddenly by chance you hear this sublime truth spoken on the scripture, and suddenly you find a great relief, a way out. There is a way out. And that's the thing which has been related in this sloka. That how we find a way out, because that gives you an another dimension of existence of which you are not aware. You know why we go through this inescapable trauma in life? Why we feel so helpless? Because we try to find the answers of the problems of life only in a particular dimension. That's our sensate dimension of this world. Whatever I see through my eyes, ears, whatever I hear, through tongue, whatever I touch, through nose, whatever I smell, through skin, whatever I touch. Beyond this, there is no existence as if there is no existence. My world is filtered out by these five senses and that's what is the reality for me. I can never even think of something beyond that. And when I try to find answers to the big questions of life, only relating to this dimension, you can never get. With all the advancement of your science, of your psychology, of your neurology, you, you can name any subject. The, all the subjects at last is there to annihilate the human suffering, is to attenuate the human suffering. But the biggest paradox is 
with all the advancements we are finding, the human suffering is becoming keener and keener. It's not reducing. And that's why we still find the scriptures for which many people have developed apathy, but still the religions thrive, it exists. Because at last we find that a huge percentage of the population do find a great relief there. So if you take science to be the thing which uh, is alone, I believe. And what's the science? That based on observation, whatever observation is there, based on that, I prepare the data and I believe I just bring out the working truth or principle from that. So if we are not biased, if we don't close our eyes, just whenever we speak of scriptures, we don't turn our eyes from there. Swami Vivekananda used to say a wonderful thing, that we can never get rid of superstition. Superstition is always going to be there. Previously, it was superstition which was related to religion. Now also superstition is there. It is a superstition which is associated with science. How? Very nicely Swamiji Swami Vivekananda is saying that if I say that Patanjali said this, Vyasa said this, immediately you just simply ignore it. You just think they are all trash of no use. And the moment I say Einstein said this or such and such scientist said this, you will swallow it even without salt. That's what Swamiji is saying. That nothing is required, no spice, no salt. Isn't it a superstition? Because we find the scientific theories are constantly being, constantly changing. But whatever the science says today, I just simply believe it. Isn't it a superstition? And that's why Swamiji told this superstition is more dangerous than the religious superstition. At least religious superstition gave something to thrive on. Maybe uh, it's not something the uh, real truth, but with that they somehow sustain in, uh, in their life. But with this uh, scientific superstition, it simply disintegrates us. We find life to be meaningless, hollow. So now what we were saying that we let us go to that point, that unless we relate to that another dimension of existence, we can never find answers to the big questions of life. And even in the last class, we were giving that example in Karma Yoga. Here also we will cite that example, even in our day-to-day life. We cannot get all the answers if we are just restricting our vision to a particular dimension of existence. Just that example which we gave in the last class, again, let us relate that if I ask you, if a teacher asks the student, there's a, gives a question, What's the question? Draw exactly four triangles by joining just four points. You can try. It is impossible. You can never do it. You must say it's possible. The moment you try to do it, you will find that two lines will be intersecting somewhere or other to create the fifth point. You can never get. And then also it won't be exactly four triangles. It may be more than four. You can never get exactly four triangles by joining four points. However, you may try. The answer, but there is a solution. What's the solution? You have to draw three points on the paper, just 
spot three points on the paper and imagine the fourth point in the space. Now you join, you will get exactly four triangles, one in the base and three sides. It's a triangular pyramid you get. So why I was not able to solve the question? Because I was trying to get the answer only in the two dimensions of the paper. I never took space, the height to be the another direction, the space to be the another dimension. Unless you take that, you can never get answer. In this life also, that unless you are relating to the spiritual dimension of our existence, it is impossible to get the answers to the big questions of life. It is bound to end up in inescapable trauma. Now let us try to understand with an example what, that how from inescapable trauma that learned helplessness comes. This example we were relating even in the few last class. Again, let us just to make it contextual, let us just cite that example. That in this, it's a scientific experiment which has been done again and again. What's that? With the rats, that you take a cage in the middle of the cage, there are some wheels and the rats are kept on one side of the cage. On the other side of the cage, there's some food. And now at the beginning, the wheels are made almost frictionless. So now the moment that rats are hungry, they're in need for the food, they want to cross over the wheels, they cannot. Because the more they try, the wheels goes on revolving and the rats find they are just moving in the same place, like a treadmill. They cannot move forward. The wheels are, wheels are so frictionless, it doesn't allow them to go to the other side. And that results in learned helplessness. You know how? This inescapable trauma results in learned helplessness. How? Next, in the next phase, you increase the friction of the wheel. Now, if the rats try a little, not that easily they can cross. They have to try a bit hard. They can easily cross. But it has been found they won't try. They somehow have developed that learned helplessness that in no way I can cross those wheels. But very interesting. If there are 10 rats, eight of them, eight of them won't try. But two of them somehow crosses. So now that big question comes that, yes, most of them has ha gone through that stage, which is called learned helplessness resulted in the defeatist attitude, pessimistic attitude, which has resulted in fear. They never try, but two have somehow crossed. Those two we can say are the optimists. How, what made them cross? It's not that all are having the defeatist attitude, a few have developed. So even in the modern psychology, they try that, let us study that those two, what made them cross? What made them try again? Why, what made them take every challenge uh, fresh, new? What makes them? So there are various traits which has been discussed in the modern psychology, that what differentiates between a pessimist and an optimist? The one who says the half glass is empty, the other says the half glass is full. Both are correct. How you're looking at it. If a glass is half filled, some will say it is half full and others will say it is half empty. The pessimist only looks at emptiness. 
optimist looks at what you have with you so what are the threats the first threat which differentiates the pessimist from the optimist is that pessimist take all the problem to be permanent it is going to be with me i have no way out optimist takes every challenge anew with freshness they take each and every problem as temporary and yes it was there but in future again if the problem comes most probably i will have the strength to transcend it to overcome it so they take the challenge every time anew so that is pessimists take all the problems to be permanent optimists they take it to be temporary pessimists take all the problem to be all pervasive the problems become all pervasive for them for the optimist it is just local so what actually it means that we as a human being have so many faculties it doesn't mean that we are good in all the faculties there may be some weaknesses in us but the pessimist what they do suppose in school as in the last class also we were giving the same example that there that there are so many subjects most probably i am weak in mathematics that doesn't mean that i am just of no use i am so strong in other the language group the social science group i'm so strong but constantly brooding over my weakness on mathematics affects my result in other subjects also so out of 10 faculties if i nine faculties are strong only one is weak i go on brooding over that weakness so much that it starts affecting all the other good faculties also and that's the pessimists and the optimists take it just local they just overlook it yes i know i have identified this is my weakness but there are so many strengths why to deal they just constantly deal with this weakness so they take the problem to be local so let us just take this two traits and now we will try to understand that how devotion helps us to be more optimist that even we find that even in the modern psychology they says if we take the data it has been found that those who are having some faith they cope up with the problems of life much better they are optimistic so what how it helps them to develop those optimistic traits to take all the problem as temporary to take them as local so you now just say there are so many religions so many belief but one thing common what is the common thing for which we all agree the moment i believe in any faith any faith immediately you become aware of an infinite dimension of your existence that without faith what happens that life began at certain point of time i just have this only one life at certain point i'm going to die and this is the be all and end all of my existence i am constantly going through some change this in scripture they say shara vikara we are jayate asti viparinamate vardhate viparinamate apakshyate nasti we are born we exist for some time we grow then we start the decaying process starts and then the death is there transformation decay death and we were born at certain point of time we are going to die at certain point of time but the moment you relate to any of the this faith this you get aware of the spiritual dimension 
the real me is a spirit, is not this body. It is infinite. Some doesn't believe in the infinite past, but there is no religion which doesn't believe in infinite future. In Vedanta, they believe in both infinite past as well as an infinite future. This soul was never born. It is never going to die. It is both Anadi and Ananta. In the Abrahamic religions, we find that there is an idea of Anadi is not there. That yes, the soul was born at a certain point of time, but there is no end. You are going to exist through eternity. So what happened? The moment you relate to that through religion, relate to that dimension of existence, immediately life becomes just a passing time. It's not the be all and end all of my existence. It's just a flow. All those who have faith, they always have that idea that at last God is there to save me. I'm just going through this problem for the time being. Is there anyone who has that faith, doesn't have that idea that I am going to overcome this, maybe in this life, maybe after life, but this becomes something temporary. It is no more permanent. It is just a passing phase. And naturally it becomes local also. It is just affecting a particular phase of my life. It is not going to just simply engulf my entire existence. So this is the moment I develop the faith in God, all the problems become temporary and it becomes local. As in the last class also we were indicating that the wonderful line which we sing every day in our Aratrikam, that one line is Shampadatava Sripada Bhavagoshpada Variyathai. The Swamiji very nice example he is giving. In our scriptures also this example is there. Swamiji is actually has extracted that idea from our scriptures and he is indicating it in that, that one line in our Aratrikam. What? That the moment I make the divine, the, the, the divine as the treasure of my life, the fit of the divine is that in my heart, is it is a treasure. Sampada, Tavasripada, your lotus fit is my treasure. When I make it my treasure, what happens? Bhava Goshpada Variyathai. The world with its problems appears to me as a shoreless ocean. But the moment I make your lotus feet the treasure of my heart, it becomes just like the hoof of a cow, that huge ocean. But just even a frog can jump over it. Such a small thing it has become. So how that has become local? So that's the thing which has been spoken of. You know, it is not the problems of life which really bothers us. What bothers us is that I think this problem is going to annihilate me. The moment the spiritual dimension comes into existence and you know there is no annihilation, even the problems of life can become a joy right. Just the example we were giving, even in the last class, that's when you go for a what you say, this roller coaster ride. We are not supposed to enjoy it. We are supposed to be scared of it. What a dangerous path it is taking. Suddenly it is taking me up and then I am suddenly falling. When I am just taking on a circular motion, I feel as if I am going to be, the centripetal force is going to throw me out. It's not a very pleasant thing, but we enjoy, we go for it. Why? We know it has been designed in such a way, it's not going to really harm me. All these ups and downs is not going to really harm me. 
So when you know nothing is going to kill you, you are there, nothing can annihilate you. All this becomes a joy ride. You can easily take all the so-called challenges of life as a passing phase and it is just for the enjoyment of the soul. The question of suffering doesn't come. That's why the devotees say that whatever phase you may have kept me, O Lord, as you please, I know that after all, it is the you who are going to save me. It's nothing going to affect me. It's the various tests you are just taking. But after all, there is no annihilation for me. So as Sri Ramakrishna used to say that when we have faith in a person, we know he's not going to harm any in any way because he's a good person. And if I say I have faith in God and I suffer, that means I doesn't, I do not have faith in God. Because the best person in the entire existence is God. There is nothing negative in him. After saying I have faith in him, how can I doubt that he is not going to save me? That that shows that there is a contradiction in what you are saying. You are not actually professing your faith, which is not you believe, it is just a lip service you are doing. So that's the thing which is being indicated here. So even in the present situation, we find in the entire world, because of the COVID, that inescapable trauma we are going through. So in all these situations, whether the inescapable trauma is because of adhyatmic of my own problems, or because of some Adhi Daivik or Adhi Bhautik, maybe because of some natural disaster, or maybe something like because of this COVID, this Adhi Bhautik, some infection, whatever it may be. A devotee somehow has the capacity to deal with it calmly, without getting totally overwhelmed by the situation of life. So now you will find that this is the thing which is being spoken of. That suddenly you just by chance hear the scriptures. And suddenly it gives you a new way of thinking. Suddenly you find that another dimension has opened up. All the things which you were thinking as unsurmountable, they have become something very small. And you are at peace with yourself. So that's the thing. That's the benefit which you get by studying the scriptures. And once you study, once you try to your, adopt the life as per the troops, which has been spoken of the scripture, your life has an overwhelming, this overhauling transformation. You just become a different person. So that's the thing which the Bhagavad Samhita is uh, assuring us. This, you just, just study from anywhere. You just open the book and just a few lines you study. Suddenly you will find that you are getting aware of another dimension of existence where there is no annihilation. It speaks of eternal bliss, being in the eternal communion with the divine. It's an eternal companionship with the divine. So that's being indicated in this sloka. After this, we will find that Srimad Bhagavatam, this scripture, after composing Vyasa, was in search of his own son, his son, Shukadeva, who actually was in deep contemplation. He was in Samadhi. Vyasa Deva, it's not just because of affection, filial affection for the son, that 
he wanted his son to preach it there was some special reason that he wanted this, his son shukadeva to preach bhagavatam to the human kind and for for that shukadeva had to be brought down from that state of samadhi so what was the need for bringing down shukadeva from samadhi to preach bhagavatam to the human kind so that's the section which we will now take up so now very interesting that why vyasa needed first of all that this why he composed bhagavatam to preach bhakti bhakti there is bhakti is the thing you will find in the vedas it is very rudimentary the idea of bhakti is not in the vedas it came much later in the puranas so we find that it is a vyasa who is uh, as if expounding bhakti through the scripture now what was the need was there no spirituality uh, just in the vedic religion religion of course the veda speaks of that sublime uh, idea of the brahman the atman it's there in the upanishads what was the need for the bhagavatam so now we will find a wonderful thing just let us try to understand first that why for bhagavatam uh, vyasa needed shukadeva because vyasadeva actually composed 18 puranas before composing this bhagavatam the author of all these 18 puranas is is just um, what you say is accredited to uh, vyasa so he is the author of all the 18 uh, puranas and very interesting all those puranas the one who preached was a suta he was a, by caste is a shudra his name was roma harshana after composing all those 18 puranas the roma harshana is shudra shudra belonging to the shudra class he was a suta but the sutas were wonderful characters they were they all belonged to the shudra they never had the uh, access to study the vedas they were the fourth m class among the class distinctions among the four class distinctions brahman kshatriya vaishya the last class the shudra they had no access to the study of the vedas but they could study the purana and the itihasa and not only that in any vedic sacrifice the recitation of the purana and itihasa was compulsory and that's a, that speaks of a wonderful society what's the wonderful society that class distinction is there in any society it's not only that the vedic society had this class distinction any society even now in america black life matters that it's going on it's there everywhere you, class distinctions are something throughout the world is there but in the vedic society was wonderful in a way that though as per our occupation there were different class the castes were there even now the four caste in any society it is there the brahman are the intellectuals those who are doing research in the university are the brahmins those who are in the academic field are the brahmins kshatriyas you can say the the federal government is a kshatriya who has who is looking after the the law and what you say the law and order in the society not only that if the country as per the international borders are concerned to save the country from any this uh, inter international uh, 
disagreements or violence, again, you find it's a federal government there. They're the Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, the business class is there. The, the one, the economy is, uh, is thriving because of this, all the Vaishyas. Any, any society will have this. And the Shudras, you may say this class doesn't belong. The so-called the slaves. Shudras are not the slaves. Those who does personal service to you. All now who is doing the service to us? The one who is providing us the electricity, the one who is providing us the water, the Yara River Valley, and then our fuel, the council who is taking has taken the responsibility of cleaning the parks, of cleaning the keeping the roads clean, of cleaning our garbages, the council. That so you see that this as per the work, these four classes were there. It's always there, even in the present society, it is there. But what was the one? What was the beauty of the Vedic society for any communal service? Suppose even now you go to the village. Suppose there is a wedding ceremony of a Brahmin family. You know, very interesting. The whether you have long hair or short, that doesn't matter. The one who belongs to quiet lower class, the barber, has to be called for giving a haircut. And those who are cooking, they has to be called for the taking the responsibility of the cooking. You will find all the classes. Even there is some uh, a, a religious sac- that you will say that ceremony, some yagya. There's some sacrifice has to be done. The one who is a butcher, he has to be invited to do that. The entire society, the entire structure was such, they all has to get involved in any social service, community service. And that way, a wonderful sense of belonging was there. No one was left out. In a society, the biggest problem, the biggest, uh, you know, that the uh, problem is with the crime. And we think it is a particular section who are uh, of the society who are more prone to crime. But actually it is, the problem is not with that person. You will find those who are left out, somehow those, that section of the society who cannot be brought in the mainstream, there the crime increases. They feel left out in all ways they are deprived. And from them you will find the crime is evolving, evoking. So you will find that this was a wonderful society and that's what any society should be. The more we can create a sense of belonging by bringing all together through some activities that creates a wonderful society. So we find that the Shudras, they say that this the, the lower class, the so-called those who were not educated, though those who were not yet sufficiently refined uh, to have that education, even now in society, if you go to some this tribal uh, area, you will find they're the first generation learners, how difficult it is for them to really come to the mainstream education. It takes few generations. So it's not that they have been deprived, but they belong to that class. But very interesting, even they are also not left out. In all the Vedic sacrifices, this recitation of Purana and Itihasa was compulsory. It has it was a part of that uh, sacrifice. And in that, it's only, it's not the Brahmins. It's the Shudras has to do it. And those particular Shudras were called Sutas. They have to be invited and they were highly venerated. Just the way the Brahmin who is going to do the Yajna is venerated, the Sutas were highly venerated. 
and they were sutidhars as they had no academic education but as they had to memorize the purana nitihasa it was not that they will see and read there was no scripture they have to memorize so they were sutidhars that prolific memory and roma harshana is one such to whom vyasa taught all the 18 puranas and it is he who was going and reciting these puranas in all the vedic sacrifices now when this uh, bhagavatam was composed he could have also made roma harshana to preach this but instead of that he was in search of his son who was in deep samadhi we will come to his life again in the next uh, section but just uh, let us try to understand that he was in deep samadhi from there vyasa had to bring him down to preach bhagavatam why so this is the thing now we will have to try to understand before we go to the shlokas uh, which has uh, the significance in with this part of the bhagavatam so you will find a very interesting thing in the vedic society there were four stages the brahmacharya the grihastha the vanaprastha the sanyasa four ashramas very nicely it was structured the first 25 years as a brahmachari you have to inculcate dharma there were four ashramas and there were four purusharthas very interesting ashrama means shrama means labor endeavor a is a, in the sense of encompassment that you have to endeavor in that stage of life from the beginning to the end there was no question of retirement your entire life is full of endeavor the nature of endeavor will change the your goal the, your aim may change your purpose of life may change but endeavor has to be there as a brahmachari it was a study of the vedas why so that i can be uh, aware of the dharma i can get established in dharma now dharma doesn't mean just simple academic education dharma means dharayate iti dharma all those sacrifices all those vidhis nishedas which they studied for what to integrate their life that you have to integrate your life how if you keep your mind free it is bound to be distracted in all the negative things of life so you have to train your mind in such a way that is all those sacrifice everything were a way of regimenting your mind so in the brahmachari as a brahmachari you were supposed to learn all those things so dharma was the thing was a purushartha which you were supposed to pursue then as grihastha now you have to perform all the sacrifices the nitya karma based on your varna as a brahmin what you have to were supposed to do you do as a kshatriya what you are supposed to do you do all those nitya karma and the sacrifices you have to perform and then at after another stage at the age of 50 now comes the question of retirement your children have grown they have now become established now you can retire retirement not in the sense of retirement in the present age it's just the change of endeavor you have now you are becoming more aware of the higher values of life that has opened up to you you have taken care of the immediate responsibilities now in the as a state of vanaprastha you go for upasana and then the last sanyasa stage is that when through upasana when you have developed sufficient renunciation 
now you may go for sanyasa where sravana manana nidhyasana through that i am just cultivating the gyana so in the vedic society you will find the gyan this the knowledge part was something which was very very prevalent that as a karma first the karma was there from that karma renunciation comes and from that renunciation is leading you to the path of uh, search for the truth through analysis analytical uh, observation and analytical studies there was as such no provision for bhakti brahmacharya grihastha vanaprastha sanyasa so if somehow you felt that uh, that you do not have uh, that uh, urge for leading the householder's life you were allowed after brahmacharya to go into sanyasa but whatever it may be there was no place for bhakti that the moment the dispassion comes for the sacrifice immediately have to go for sanyasa so now the big challenge was there that all are not up to that there are many who doesn't feel the utility of the sacrificial rites there's a dispassion have developed for that they are no more uh, uh, what you say attuned to that attached to that but at the same time they do not have the sufficient vairagya for sanyasa so they don't want to be engaged in all those sacrificial rites at that elaborate karmakanda but at the same time they don't have the sufficient renunciation for sanyasa so there was no way out for them so that's why you will find that the pancham purushartha bhakti is called the fifth purushartha the dharma artha kama moksha these were the only four purusharthas in the vedic society that either you go for moksha or you are maybe involved in artha and kama just you go on earning and you go for the so called legitimate sense pleasures of life if you are bored with it go for sanyasa what uh, was the way out for those who somehow found that artha and kama is no more bothering him he doesn't want them but at the same time he has not developed the tremendous dispassion for moksha there was no way out so here we find that the bhakti is the thing which has to be preached so that's why he has written written this bhagavatam not only that another thing is very interesting sri ramakrishna used to say in this kali yuga uh, that we are in in the language of ramakrishna kali yuge annagata pran annagata as if our prana is dependent on food annagata in food so if we just take it literally it won't make much sense but one thing which is very interesting what he is saying is very interesting that how the civilization has grown how it has grown that as a uh, you know our ancestors when they were in the forest as they they were the fruit gatherers food gatherers they haven't yet learned agriculture they haven't learned cultivation and agriculture so they were not the food producers so every day they used to go to the jungle collect food every day there was the challenge whether i will get the food or not whether i will be eaten up by the predators or not and whatever i get with that i have to sustain myself again next day i go out that way there is no question of some spiritual pursuits the day to day life is something which encompasses my entire existence i cannot have this other endeavors at all now when we learned agriculture with the agriculture 
what came was laser. That yes, at a particular uh, period of the year, I work hard, I grow crops, and then there's, uh, there's, uh, I store them. Now for the entire year, my, what you say, the sustenance has been taken care of. Now what I do with the laser? All the art, craft, spirituality, everything came along with the laser. The moment you got laser, what will you do with the laser? So now cut this, all these recitations, songs, everything, the particular groups of people started uh, getting skilled in this thing and the people were entertained by that. And that's how the culture developed. Even the spirituality that as Sri Ramakrishna used to say, Khali Pete Dharmohana. When you are hungry, you can never think of religion. The basic need has to be fulfilled. Then only you can think of the other dimension. Very interesting. That the entire progress in the civilization is to get more and more laser. And from that, the culture comes. But just see, in our attempt to get more and more laser, at last, what has happened? In our house, we have washing machine, we have the dishwasher, we have dryer. Almost, we are not supposed to do any physical work. That's how, that's the, we are just creating more and more laser. That's the entire progress in civilization speaks of that. But the paradox is, we find with all those things, we are busy from morning till night. Why? Otherwise, I cannot earn the bare necessity for which I can, with which I can thrive. That I am working from morning till night just to sustain myself. Now you will understand that what Ramakrishna told is so significant in this yuga, Annagata Prana, because just to uh, earn your bread throughout the day you have to work. In our search for laser, actually, yes, such a big paradox. There's no laser. And now the, comes the question, then what about the spirituality? Those elaborate yajyas that uh, those who felt like meditating, just, just they, they were allowed to go to the deep into the forest, meditate. The entire society was there to sustain them. The bhiksha was, concept of bhiksha was there. In the present society with this all running from morning to evening, where can this section really thrive? We find that it becomes very difficult. So that's why, again, with the advancement of the material civilization, as we find that the occupational duties have become is encroaching more and more, my private life, or then all those elaborate spiritual practices becomes almost impossible. And then again, this bhakti is something which plays a great role. How? That if you read how bhakti plays a great role, I, that uh, just a very small book you study, The Practice of Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. That how through his daily small activities, by filling the presence of the divine, he used to be in attuned to a wonderful that the level of tranquility and calmness. And he was a highly advanced spiritual soul. The small booklet is a wonderful book. And that's the thing which has been spoken of here. Vyasa thought that the, with the Kali Yuga, with this present age, when we find no time for spiritual practice, or those elaborate yagyas, they become almost useless. We can never think of them. So bhakti is the way. How bhakti helps? 
So Sri Ramakrishna gives a wonderful example how bhakti helps in our day-to-day life. He says that suppose a ship, a, a huge ship, which is sailing through the ocean. Now for some, for some reason you want to uh, uh, disintegrate the entire ship. It's a very difficult job. So to unscrew all the bolts is a very tedious job. One by one, you have to unscrew them. But if it so happens that the ship is passing by a mountain made of magnet, so that's what Ramakrishna is giving that example, all the bolts will get un- unhinged all at once, immediately. That suppose you are passing by a magnetic mountain. So that's the thing which Sri Ramakrishna, what's a wonderful example is giving. So bhakti, the moment you just become aware of the presence of the divine in your life. That it is the it is the some higher power, some bigger power, much bigger than life, for from whom this entire creation has emanated. I am just passing through a phase of life. Sometimes I don't find the meaning of it, but it is, after all, a projection of that. Most probably it is to take me through certain experiences so that at last I become again one with him. So these all ideas speaks of bhakti, the total resignation, no expectations, and being and all these things, not because just like a stoic, this is, the stoics are also this philosophy, what they speak, that I don't expect anything from life. I just go on with my activities, but it speaks of some dryness that uh, I have just simply foregone my emotions. I just do whatever I have to do. Bhakti and karma yoga is actually not speaking of the dryness. It is actually love for the divine, which makes me to be indifferent to the so-called worldly uh, emotional bonds. I know this I have to take care of. God is taking care of his creation through all the love which he has implanted in me. My genes are altruistic. They're bound to feel the sympathy for others, love for others. It is not I who love others. I am built in such a way that I'm bound to love others. It is God who has created in me. Mother loves the child because she cannot do anything else. She's bound to do that. There is no credit in it. And once you know that, the question of ownership doesn't come. I know I'm just the channel through which the divine is working. So that's how the bhakti starts working and automatically your bondage starts falling off. It is from the state stage of, uh, from the feeling of kartritva, the idea of bhaktritva comes. If I feel I'm the owner, naturally the question of enjoyment comes. If I am owner, I have to enjoy what I owe. Here you own nothing. Everything is of the divine. So this bhakti scripture gave a new path. When you find that it is very difficult to practice spirituality exclusively, you have to be in your work field with all your responsibilities. I get some time, but I cannot really enjoy my entire life totally exclusively in my spiritual pursuits. Then this bhakti, what you say that's synchronized with karma is the only way out. Feeling that he has written the Bhagavatam and that's what he's being indicated in the 28th and the 29th sloka of the second chapter of first part of Bhagavatam. That after all, that the Vedas, the sacrifices, the yoga, all the obligatory duties, your jnana, your analytical deduction of 
the spiritual goal. All those things, your austerity, what is all aimed at? It is aimed at somehow to get attuned with the divine, isn't it? Then why not you just take the shortcut path to be aware of the divine always, just instead of thinking of getting rid of the bolts one by one, why not be just near the magnetic mountain so that he takes care of everything and all the bonds falls off all at once. And that's why when the Supreme being alone is the one who is there to give me the liberation from all the bondages. So why not hold on to him directly? So that's being the purpose of writing Bhagavata so that God become the means, God becomes the end. Till then, all the scriptures were for what? God was the means. Either world or moksha was the end. I also don't want either the one who was in the path of jnana. For him, God was the means. Through bhakti, I will develop dispassion from the world and that will help me to attain moksha. Even God was just the means. God was not the end. So here, See, the, the, our Vyasa is asserting this fact that Bhagavatam speaks of what? God is the means, God is the end. That is being indicated in this 28th and the 29th sloka of the second chapter of the first part of Bhagavatam. So let me just read out these slokas. Doesn't need much explanation. You will find it's very simple. Vasudeva Paraveda. That Vasudeva, the supreme divine personality in the form of Vasudeva, in the form of Krishna. He is the one who is transcending the Vedas. Paraveda, who is, transcends the Vedas. Vasudeva Paramakha. All the sacrifices. He transcends because it's all the sacrifices are meant for him. The Vedas describes him. So he's beyond the Vedas. He's beyond the sacrifices. Vasudeva Parayoga. Vasudeva Parakriya. The yoga also is at aimed at last to get united with the divine. So all these means are not in the end in itself. After all, Vasudeva is the aim, ultimate goal. So why not be aware of him? Why not thrive to get him? Why not pass away the magnetic mountain so that all your bonds at a time gets unhinged? Vasudeva Parakriya, the 29th Continues with the same idea. Vasudeva Param Jnanam. Vasudeva Param Tapa. Vasudeva Parodharma. Vasudeva Paragati. Paragati. This is the ultimate goal. Is the Lord. That all the sacrifices are meant for him. Vasudeva Param Tapa. All our analytical study is meant to get united with the divine. Vasudeva Param Jnanam. Vasudeva Parodharma. All the religions which we practice, all the do's and don'ts which we practice, all the integrity which we practice in life is also again aimed at last to get united with the divine. So if he is the goal, why not hold on to him directly? So that's the idea with which the Bhagavatam is written. That how Now you will say that still it appears to be a bit poetic. Now the next sloka actually speaks that how it happens. The seventh sloka which we are going to study from the second chapter, first part. What it says that if you adore the Lord that through bhakti, what, what happens? What's the result? Vasudeve Bhagavati Bhakti Yoga Prayojita Janayati Ashu Vairagyam Jnanam 
chayat ahoitukam. That once you have the devotion for this Vasudeva, you do not have to practice uh, the yoga, this all obligatory duties. It immediately helps you to develop devotion which for the Lord, which immediately results in Vairagya. As Ramakrishna used to say, that if you want to get rid of the West, you have to go towards the East. You cannot push the West. The more you go towards the East, the West automatically falls behind. The more you start loving the Lord, the world starts falling off. So that's why Janayati Ashu Vairagyam. Jnanam Chayat Ahaitukam. And the knowledge is revealed just spontaneously. You, there is no need for Chitta Shuddhi and going through that. The love for the Lord automatically results in Chitta Shuddhi and that results in the realization. This also, the, it follows the some psychological process that how just devotion makes all the spiritual practices spontaneous. You don't have to practice step by step. It makes it spontaneous. That, that is, a, uh, that is a something, is a science in itself. In the modern psychological language, that we can say that the first we take resort to the neuroplasticity, which results in flow, which ultimately leads to samadhi. So these are the mere words today we are speaking. That next day we will try to understand that how by resorting to our this neuroplasticity, we can it can lead to the flow. And this flow in the modern the, uh, psychology, the flow psychology is a very uh, important subject. It speaks of the real happiness which we can get. You, that real happiness never can come through the sunset pleasures of life. It can come only when you enter into a state of flow. These are the language of the modern psychology. And the same thing you will find is being spoken of in the Bhakti Shastra. And that flow leads you ultimately to the Samadhi. How it happens? Uh, we will try to have an understanding of it. The science of Bhakti Yoga, the entire science of Bhakti Yoga is actually indicated in this sloka, the seventh sloka of the second chapter of the first part, that Vasudeva Bhagavati Bhakti Yoga Prayojita. The moment you can uh, have bhakti towards the supreme reality, then what happens? Two things. One is the vairagya, renunciation is spontaneous, it happens. And the knowledge dawns in without any conscious effort in your part. It just simply spontaneously just uh, dawns in your life. How it happens, uh, we will try to understand with the help of modern psychology again in the next class. With this, we stop our discussion today. Thank you all for attending the class. Namaskars.